One of the persistent questions that's been asked over the centuries is, why do so many bad things happen in our world? You ever wonder that? Why do so many bad things happen? Why are there wars, poverty, disease? Why are there earthquakes and tsunamis and hurricanes that wreak devastation, destroy lives? This is getting depressing, isn't it? Um, you know, and sometimes the question is posed as, why does God allow these things? If God is good and God is loving and God is God, then how can he let these things happen? And often we're able to live with the unanswered questions like those as long as the bad things that are happening are happening somewhere else to someone else, right? We can deal with the problem of evil as long as it's theoretical. But the questions become more difficult to ignore when we're the one who loses a loved one or has a child diagnosed with cancer or some other kind of tragedy strikes us. Now, I've known a number of people over the years who've given up on God under those circumstances. You know, the weight of the pain, the questions it raised became more than they felt they could bear. But I know it doesn't have to be that way. You know, we're coming to the end of our journey through Paul's letter to the Ephesians that we began way back last fall. And we've called this series of sermon series, Becoming Who You Already Are. You know, Paul does a beautiful job in the first part of Ephesians of, of helping us understand our identity as followers of Jesus, understanding the, the very real change that takes place in us when we give our lives to Jesus. And then he goes on to write about how who we are on the inside can become more and more who we are on the outside, too. Well, near the end of the letter, there's a famous passage that talks about putting on the armor of God. It describes what's often called spiritual warfare. So I'm going to spend a couple of weeks talking about this passage and how it can help us deal with those difficult questions as we live out our faith in an often challenging world. So, are you ready? Okay, let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we do just welcome you. We open ourselves to you. We thank you that you're here with us as, um, as we gather in your name. And so now we just ask you to... Um, speak to us this morning. I pray that your word would encourage us, that it would strengthen us, that it would draw us more deeply into your life. So just give me grace as I speak. Give us all ears to hear this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is Ephesians chapter 6, and I'm going to read just verses 10 through 12. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, uh, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You know, there was a famous American uh, psychiatrist and author during the late 20th century by the name of M. Scott Peck. Uh, he was probably best known for his book called The Road Less Traveled. Uh, Peck was an agnostic for most of his life. Uh, he'd been trained in psychology according to what was the standard model of the time in which it was believed that there really is no such thing as evil. But about the same time as that, um, much to his own surprise, Peck became a Christian, 
he also started to realize that it wasn't enough to regard some of his patients as simply being ill or misguided or confused. He was forced to come to terms with a larger, darker power at work in their lives, a power that could only be described as evil. That recognition of real evil at work in people's lives made Peck very unpopular in professional circles. And that idea is, is still pretty unpopular today. Here in our, our educated, Western, technological world, the idea that there's any kind of spiritual reality, good or bad, interacting with us on a day-to-day basis is often viewed as superstitious nonsense. You know, the attitude's a lot like that of two boys who were walking home from church after hearing a sermon about the devil. One of the boys said to each other, what do you think about all of this Satan stuff? And the other boy replied, well... You know how Santa Claus turned out? It's probably just your dad. (laughs) Well, one way I've heard all of this explained is that here in America, most people have what's called a two-tiered worldview. One tier is this physical, material world. The world that we can see, we can hear, we can touch and smell and taste, the world that we live in every day. The second tier is the realm of the supernatural, where God and the angels and any other supernatural beings, good or evil, exist if they exist at all. And it's somewhere far removed from us in this view. It's like there's this strict divide between the natural and the supernatural worlds. It doesn't normally affect us or interact with this world on a day-to-day basis. And that is what I would say most Americans, and and probably even, if we're honest, a large percentage of Christians assume the world is like. But much of the rest of the world, and most people throughout history, have had what you could call a three-tiered worldview. You have the physical material world in which we live every day. You have the realm of the supernatural where God and the angels are. And it is in some ways separate from us. We can't go there until after we die, for instance. But in the three-tiered worldview, these two realms overlap, you could say. They interact. They're not totally separate. And that's how the Bible describes our world. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, Paul says. In other words, there's more going on than we can perceive with our five senses. As followers of Jesus, people are never our real enemy, even when they act like it. The evil is coming from somewhere else. There's more going on in our lives, in our circumstances, and in our world than we can perceive and explain with our five senses. There are real spiritual forces of evil at work in our world, is what the Bible would say. We wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Bible scholars reveal those terms like authorities and powers. Um, they, they, They refer to both actual evil spiritual powers and to the human rulers uh, and the systems in our world that they influence. 
The Bible tells us we live in a three-tiered world where the natural and the supernatural overlap and interact in our everyday lives. Now, I'm pretty sure that most of us here don't have trouble with the God side of that three-tiered world, right? We're, we're, we're comfortable with that. We believe that God is here with us. You know, we experience his presence. We know he's at work in our lives. We know that the Holy Spirit actually comes to dwell in us when we become followers of Jesus. And we know that he empowers us and equips us to live lives the way God created us to live them. That's what this whole Becoming Who You Already Are series has been all about. But we might be a lot less clear on what we think about the dark side of all of that. You know, Satan and his demons and the powers and the principalities. What are we supposed to do with all of that? Yeah, how do we think about all of that and include it in our life of faith without getting kooky, right? That's the question, isn't it? How do we do it without getting weird? There's a famous quote from C.S. Lewis on this topic. Uh, he wrote, there are two equal and opposite errors into which we can fall about the devil. One is to disbelieve his existence. The other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in him. He's equally pleased by both errors. Well, to walk that middle road, it helps to take a step back and get a big picture view of what the Bible says. I love big picture views, so this is fun for me. So we're going to talk about the big picture. What the Bible clearly says is there is a Satan, and Satan is at work in this world to oppose the work of God. You know, Satan is actually more of a title than a name in the Bible. In the original Greek and the Hebrew, he's always called the Satan. That literally means the adversary, or you could say the opponent. The Satan is the one who opposes God in everything God is doing. Now, the Bible never clearly spells out exactly who or what this Satan really is. Now, I know the most popular idea is that he was once an angel that rebelled against God, and there's a couple of passages in the Bible that are used to support that idea. And it, it could be right, but it's definitely speculation. It's never clearly stated. God never clearly tells us who Satan is or why God allowed him to exist and wreak havoc and chaos on the earth. The Bible doesn't seem particularly concerned with that question of why. It doesn't tell us why there's evil in the world. It just assumes that there is. Satan shows up first as a serpent tempting and deceiving Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and then again throughout the Bible over and over, working to destroy every good thing that God created. And that's the first thing that God would have us know about Satan. He's the adversary. If Jesus shows us what God is like, well, then Satan is just the opposite of that. If Jesus is love, then Satan is hate. If Jesus is truth, then Satan is a liar. If Jesus comes to bring us life, then Satan comes to bring death. In John 10, Jesus describes Satan as the one who comes to kill, steal, and destroy. In John 8, Jesus says the devil has been a murderer from the beginning and a liar and the father of lies. 
As I'm sure you all know, Satan is not the kind of cute but naughty red man with horns that he's often portrayed as, right? Not a real picture. I appreciate what New Testament scholar N.T. Wright has said about Satan, that even calling him a him, as in a person, is probably giving Satan too much credit. Being a person, you know, growing an understanding of, of who we are as persons is something that comes as a result of knowing and loving God. That's what makes us human. Opposing God destroys our personhood. It destroys our humanness. The Satan, right, says, uh, is better thought of as a non-person, a, a malevolent force intent on destroying everything good. Just as Jesus shows us what it means to be fully human, Satan reveal, reveals what it means to be fully dehumanized. Some of the movies and the TV show, shows out there capture that destructive image of evil pretty well, don't they? I mean, if you watch some of them, the show Stranger Things, I think, is a good example. How many of you watched Stranger Things when it was out? Some of you? Oh, not that many. I'm surprised. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I confess. I watched it. Yeah. Uh, it was a good example. Now, now, the evil in that may not, they may not be calling it Satan, but it is what they're portraying, right? Whether people believe in God or not, whether they believe in anything supernatural or not, there seems to be a universal deep awareness that there is that kind of evil and that it's horribly destructive. It's chaos unleashed. It just seems, I think, intuitively obvious to us. And if that's all we knew about Satan, that would be pretty frightening. There are a lot of people who live in that place too, where they believe, whether they believe in God or Satan or not, they live in a place where to them it seems like chaos rules, right? That the future is totally unpredictable, that hope is an illusion, that real unconditional love is a myth. It's, it's a hopeless place to live, but that's not where we live. That's not where Jesus calls us to live, right? Because we've received and we've been commissioned to proclaim both with our words and with the way we live the good news of Jesus. Or if you're here today and you feel like you are still living in that place of fear or chaos, Jesus is inviting you to hear and receive his good news. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came, the book of Hebrew tells us, to destroy the one who has the power of death. According to the book of Colossians, Jesus has disarmed the rulers and the authorities, the principalities and the powers. He has triumphed over them through the cross. Jesus has conquered Satan. And Jesus didn't do all of that by using the methods of Satan. You know, Jesus didn't use trickery. He didn't use deceit. He didn't use fear or intimidation. Jesus didn't use force. He didn't use violence. Unlike the heroes in the movies and the TV shows, Jesus didn't power up to destroy Satan. Jesus humbled himself and lived a life of love and service and gave him life, his life for us, pouring himself out in love. All of that evil, chaotic, destructive power of Satan couldn't stand before the unconditional, unending love of our God in Jesus. Amen, right? That's good news. And so a new world was born 
on the day that Jesus rose from the dead. That's a critically important thing for us to get our minds around. A new world was born on the day that Jesus rose from the dead. A world where little by little, bit by bit, way too slowly in our way of thinking, but apparently good for God, the destructive chaos of Satan in our world and in our lives is being replaced by the love and the life of God. That's the world we live in. It's being replaced as people put their trust in Jesus and live the same kind of life that Jesus lived, using the same kind of weapons that Jesus used, weapons like love and mercy and forgiveness and grace. It's being replaced as more and more of God's kingdom comes in that way, and his will is done here on earth as it's already done in heaven. Amen? It's being replaced as we become who we already are and proclaim the good news of Jesus to the world with our words and with our lives. See, this is the big picture. This is the context for understanding the spiritual warfare that Paul describes in Ephesians 6. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, Paul writes. Not your own strength, right? Don't think this is about you powering up or you using force or intimidation to shut down our spiritual enemies. Don't think this is about you doing everything right or saying just the right words or being holy enough or good enough or smart enough to overcome the enemies. It says, be strong in the Lord. When you put your trust in Jesus, you become someone who is in Christ. That's all over the New Testament, right? You are now in Christ. You're a member of his body, the church. Now, that's both a personal and a corporate reality. Your strength doesn't come from who you are. Your strength comes from where you are. You are personally in the Lord, and you are also in his body, in the church, right? And both are important. Everything Paul has written about in the rest of Ephesians speaks into this. Being strong in the Lord means remembering who you are, who Jesus has already made you to be. You are loved, right? You are chosen. You are forgiven. You are blessed. You are filled with the Holy Spirit. You have been given gifts as a part of Christ's body. You are fellow citizens with God's saints. You have a purpose. You have a calling bigger than your own life. You are an integral part of what God is doing in this world through the church. That's all who you are in Christ. So be strong in the Lord. In the mystery of God, while Satan has been conquered, he has not yet been totally vanquished from this world. We don't know why, but that's, like we've been saying, it's obviously the way things are, right? It's not a, not, that's clear. And another title for Satan is the devil, which comes from a word meaning the slanderer or the accuser. The primary way Satan attacks us is by accusing us, which is another way of saying he lies to us. He tells us things that aren't true about ourselves, about God, about our world, about our future, about other people. And it's not just that Satan whispers 
lies directly to us. You know, he's not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere at once. So he's not always whispering to us directly. But those lies, those accusations have become a part of the fabric of the brokenness of this world. So when you look at Facebook and you think, everyone else is a better mom or dad than me, or everyone else has a more exciting life than me, or everyone else looks better than me, that's the accusation of Satan coming at you, right? That's what that is. When you're at work and you think, I had better work 90 hours a week because if I don't, I will be a failure and end up with nothing, that's the accusation of Satan coming at you. Now, I'm not calling your boss Satan, mind you, (laughs) especially if you work here. But that lie has become a part of the brokenness of this world. When you hear that voice in your head of that teacher you had years ago, or that coach, or that ex-spouse, or maybe even that parent, that person who should have loved you and encouraged you, telling you that you're no good, you'll never amount to anything, you have nothing to offer, that's the accusation of Satan coming at you. So when Paul says, be strong in the Lord, there's a very practical way we can do that. We can choose which voice we'll listen to. Choose which voice you'll listen to. We can choose to listen to the voice of God telling us who we are and who he made us to be and the purpose he has for us rather than listening to the accusations of Satan. Which voice are you listening to? Choose God's voice, right? Choose God's voice. God's voice is a voice of love and hope and peace. Satan's voice is a voice of condemnation and shame and fear. Which voice are you listening to? Choose God's voice. Often that voice of condemnation or shame or fear sounds an awful lot like our own voice talking to ourselves, doesn't it? We think it's just us. You know, we're telling ourselves what failures we are or how stupid we are or how unattractive or how unloving we are. Let me assure you, that is not just your own voice. You don't have to listen to it. Choose God's voice. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor, the full armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. It's not our might that we need. It's the strength of God's might. And God's might was revealed to us in Jesus as being totally different from what we usually think of as might. As John said in the book of Revelation, the lion looks like a lamb right? The lion looks like a lamb. God's might looks like self-sacrificing love. The armor we are to put on is God's armor. If Paul is drawing from Old Testament imagery as, as he writes this, he didn't make this stuff up. In Isaiah 59, for example, it describes God putting on righteousness as a breastplate and salvation as a helmet, the same language Paul uses a few verses on. This passage isn't about us doing everything right, learning the right techniques or the right prayers 
so that we can conquer the enemy. This is about us receiving from God what he has already done in Jesus and resting in that in faith and confidence, no matter how frightening our circumstances might appear. Which is why, again, it is so important that we don't see this as just something that we do alone. We do this in the Lord as a part of his body, as part of a community of people who are encouraging and strengthening and standing with each other, right? Who can speak those words of life to each other. People who are speaking with God's voice to each other. If that voice you're listening to tells you that you need to power up, you need to man up, stand strong on your own, you should be able to handle everything yourself, what's the matter with you? You're listening to the voice of the accuser. If that voice you're listening to is telling you that you need to push back against those evil people, let your righteous anger loose on them, you're listening to the voice of the accuser. If it's telling you that you should be afraid of what's happening in the world, be afraid of those people who are different from you, you are listening to the voice of the accuser. God's voice says, trust me. God's voice says, depend on me. God's voice says, live a life of love. God's voice says, don't be afraid, for I am with you, and no matter what comes, I will be with you. So which voice are you listening to? Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Choose God's voice. You know, we are engaged in a real spiritual battle, and yet it is a battle that has already been won. That's part of that already not yet tension of the kingdom of God that we talk about here. Next week, I'm going to continue talking about the armor of God and, and uh, what it means to put it on. But my challenge to you this week as you go about your days is to be aware of which voice you're listening to. Pay attention. Think about what you're thinking about, right? Choose to listen to God's voice rather than the voice of the accuser. And let me end this with one very practical plug. Read your Bible, right? Read it at least a little bit every day, even in the summer, even on vacation. Read it just a little bit every day. One of the very important things that reading the Bible daily does is that it tunes us in to God's voice. You know, God speaks to us through what we read, and reading the Bible also makes us more and more able to hear God speaking to us then in other ways throughout the day. It, it's like it tunes us in. It, it teaches us what his voice sounds like. And if you're new to reading the Bible, don't start in the Old Testament. You know, that's always what people do. Start in Genesis and about, you know, Leviticus, it just stops, right? Yeah, don't do that. Read the Gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, start there, please. Yeah. Um, and even if you've been reading the Bible for years, I would say, spend a lot of your time reading the Gospels because it helps us learn the voice of Jesus, and that's how we want to understand God's voice. That's why he came to us, right? So be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Choose God's voice. Amen? Why don't you stand?